Merciful God, as the prophets looked with anticipation and hope for the coming of your coming of your promised one, as Joseph, your servant, responded with fear, fearlessly, with righteousness, to the coming of your son. Lord, we pray that you would help us to be fearless, to face your world with righteousness through the hope of the gospel that comes through this Son, Jesus Christ, who promises and reminds us that you are with us and that you will save us from our sins. We pray these things in his name. Amen. People of God, you know the old saying that news travels fast, bad news travels at the speed of light. This is especially true in small towns. I have an old friend from high school who takes it as her calling in life to keep me up to date on all the scandalous news from Coloma, Michigan, my hometown. And she seldom misses a detail. You can imagine that in this tiny village of Nazareth in Galilee, that there were, they had sh their share of tongue waggers, people who made sure that everybody's business became everybody's business. And of course, no one can resist the rumor of a pregnancy outside of marriage. The Bible tells us that Joseph is a craftsman a word that includes everything from woodworking to stone cutting. Joseph is essentially a construction worker. And almost assuredly, this was his family's business in Nazareth, a business that would be passed down to Joseph from his father and probably grandfather. And in such an instance, the success of the family business relies heavily on the reputation of family members in the community. That is always a fragile thing in a small town, especially among religious folk. Joseph probably stands at a crossroads in life as the story begins. We know from the text that he is betrothed to be married to a young girl named Mary or Miriam. There are later traditions that try to suggest that Joseph is a much older man who had been previously married, bringing several children into the marriage this is in order to suggest that the brothers and sisters of Jesus mentioned in the Gospels came from Joseph's first wife and that Mary uh, somehow become, remains a virgin for life. But there's no real reason from the text to suggest that this is true. Typically, under normal circumstances, a marriage would be arranged from birth between the parents as a kind of contract. And the proper age of betrothal for marriage is somewhere between 13 and 15. Uh, that's when the marriage would actually take place. It seems that Joseph and Mary are about that age. Usually when the marriage is finalized, the young man would be able to take partnership or full ownership of the family business. He would become a full member of the community. And so Joseph's whole future seems to hinge on this particular moment. Betrothal is a preliminary stage of marriage in ancient Jewish culture. It's, it's more than what we would consider engagement, not exactly marriage, 
but it's a, it's a formative period, a, a period of formation for marriage. And during this time, the husband and wife would live separately for about a year. They're not permitted to engage in sexual activity. While the husband builds a house and the wife learns the skills of homemaking. Understand that the betrothal is not a trial period as we modern people tend to think about engagement. This is a period of preparation for the inevitable. In fact, it's taken so seriously in this culture that it requires a legal divorce if you want to bring an end to the betrothal. And that only on account of adultery. Since Galilee shares a very porous border with several Gentile regions, a serious concern among the Jews was that the women might be raped by Roman soldiers. And so the the purity, the expectation of purity in the betrothal period was taken very seriously. The text of Matthew chapter 1 tells us that Mary was found to be pregnant during this betrothal period. In other words, Joseph discovers that Mary is pregnant before Mary actually shares the news. It's possible that the tongue-waggers in Nazareth have begun to talk. Maybe Mary is beginning to show. Somehow, Joseph learns secondhand that his future wife is with child. That's not the way you want to hear this kind of news. You can imagine the whole world crashing down for Joseph. The reputation of his family in shambles. The business at risk. His future, everything is in jeopardy. And interestingly enough, with all this crashing down around him, the first thing that Joseph thinks about is Mary. Where does this leave her? Now, for those of you who are prone to be romantics, this makes sense. Like Romeo and Juliet, of course Joseph is concerned about the love of his life. But I want to stop you mid-tracks for just a moment. This is not Romeo and Juliet. This is an arranged marriage, a kind of business contract between parents. This is not about two crazy kids falling madly in love. And the natural response in, in this circumstance in the first century would not be to slide into romantic sentiment. Joseph is not lovesick over Mary. And so the only thing he can do is protect her. The natural response would be to take legal recourse. It would be like if you bought a car, a new car, and when it was delivered, you found out that the manifold was cracked. I don't know what a manifold is, but I I hear they can be cracked. I know that it runs against our culture's sentimental tendencies. But we need to keep this story in context in the first century, not read into it our modern assumptions about love and romance and marriage. The motivation we're told in the text, the motivation for Joseph's course of action, is not romance, but righteousness. Righteousness is a word in the Christian vocabulary, like the word repentance, that has fallen on hard times. Most often today, when we 
hear or use this word righteousness, it has the word self in front of it. It carries with it an air of supercilious spirituality, condescending religiosity. What comes to mind is the nitpicking Pharisee or the legalistic Sunday school teacher demanding rigid obedience to the law with no sign of compassion or grace. Back when I was in college, we had a rule that students needed to be in the dorm by 11 o'clock every night. Any violation of silence would earn a J. A J is a judiciary demerit that carried a $10 fine. A roommate of my girlfriend at the time had a sister who was undergoing life or death surgery. And the whole campus had been praying for her all week in chapel. Shortly after 11 o'clock one night, she received a phone call from her parents telling her that her sister had come through surgery with flying colors. And the student let out a shout of joy that apparently caught the attention of the resident director of the dorm, who promptly wrote out a J. Find the girl. And even after explanation, the, the RD refused to retract this demerit. The dean of students, even after explanation, refused to withdraw the demerit. After all, the rule book was clear. A law had been violated. That's what most people think of when they hear the word righteous. Fastidious rule-keeping, inflexible piety, unbending enforcement of the law. In fact, that's what most people meant in Joseph's day. Surrounded by Gentile nations and pagan habits, the people of God couldn't be too careful in their obedience to God's law. Religious authorities needed to carefully watch the boundaries of faith and practice to ensure that Israel didn't slide off into moral relativism. So when it came to pregnancy outside of marriage, the law was clear. The offending mother needed to be tried and executed, stoned to death by the standards of the community. At the very least, if the violator could be named, the marriage would be annulled. The innocent party, Joseph, could move on to another marriage, reputation intact. And so Joseph's head must have been swimming with options. Surely there must have been concern about maintaining his own reputation as well as the reputation of the family business, his livelihood. Surely there was concern about being obedient to the law of Moses. After all, Matthew reminds us that Joseph was a righteous man. But already, as we come to this point in Matthew's gospel, already we have a suspicion that righteousness is being redefined. Against the stream of popular interpretation, Matthew is hinting that the coming of the promised one, the coming of the Messiah, is changing everything. The previous 17 verses, the first verses of the Gospel of Matthew, contains one of those dreadful genealogies, going on and on about who begat whom and so on. 
It's too easy for us to simply slide past that kind of record, that record of the ancient saints, and just dive into the meaty stuff. But Matthew's genealogy is wonderful. It's full of surprises. Among them is the mere mention of women. For legal purposes, the mention of mothers in a genealogy is irrelevant. The child received legal status from the father and tribal affiliation from the father, even from a stepfather. Yet Matthew somehow wants to remind us of the important place of women in this story. And these are not just ordinary women. These are four women who are either outsiders to Israel or women with questionable pasts, or both. Tamar, Rahab, Ruth, and the wife of Uriah, Bathsheba. You'll have to go back and look at those stories yourself if you want to be shocked. Matthew includes these women in the story. And, and according to normal standards of righteousness, these women would be, would be invisible. These are the skeletons in the closet. Joseph would be in his legal rights to disregard this woman Mary, to cast her aside like yesterday's newspaper. But the account of the genealogy in Matthew speaks of a shift in understanding of the place of women in God's plan. Righteousness under the coming Messiah, is going to look different than most people assume. It's going to move beyond any notion of legalistic rule-keeping and become a manifestation of God's grace and God's mercy. Move forward just a moment in the, in the Gospel of Matthew to chapter 5, Jesus' Sermon on the Mount. Jesus warns his followers that if they're going to see the kingdom of God, their righteousness needs to surpass the righteousness of the Pharisees and the law keepers. Surpass it. Not in becoming more legalistic and fastidious. Not in becoming more prudish about law keeping. But in recognizing the real purpose of the law. What is the real purpose of the law? to reveal the character of God, and to create a people who reflect his own image. In other words, the purpose of the law is not to create rule keepers. It's to keep, create a people who look more like their creator in holiness and love, in faithfulness and mercy, in truthfulness and grace. And somehow... Joseph seems to get that. In his righteousness, he chooses not to act on his rights, not to act vindictively or legalistically. Instead, he chooses to act out of mercy. Rather than expose Mary to public shame or even possible death, Joseph begins to think about how to quietly send her away to safety. Even that act would put Joseph at risk. People would wonder. People would talk. What happened to Mary? Why was the wedding canceled? Did something go wrong? 
All of this would have a serious impact on Joseph's reputation in the community. And as Joseph is mulling this over, something remarkable happens. He has a dream. An angel of the Lord appears to him and says, Joseph, son of David, do not be afraid to take Mary home as your wife because what is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will give birth to a son and you will give him the name Jesus, Yeshua, Yahweh saves because he will save his people from their sins. This will fulfill what the Lord has said through the prophet. The virgin will conceive and give birth to a son and they will call him Emmanuel, which means God is with us. The notion of a virginal conception remains a scandal to most of us modern people. We presume, many of us presume, that it represents the naivete of a pre-scientific culture. People who didn't understand biology, who think that magic and virgin births happen all the time. But Joseph clearly understands enough biology to know that this child, that usually a child has a biological father. There is something scandalous about this pregnancy. And the explanation of the angel doesn't make things easier, it makes things harder. Your bride is pregnant, he's told, by the creative power of the Holy Spirit. Try to tell that to the parents-in-law. This is not the pagan notion of some male deity descending down to have intercourse with a human female. In fact, the word spirit is feminine in Hebrew and neuter in Greek. Matthew's language here speaks of an act of creation, not procreation. Much like the creative power of the Spirit in Genesis chapter 1, God has chosen to start over by a second act of creation. This child, born of a virgin, who will be Emmanuel, God with us. As difficult as that is to grasp, Joseph wakes up, and because of his sense of righteousness, he obeys immediately. He moves the wedding date up. He takes Mary home to be his wife. And when she gave birth, he obeys the angel and names him Jesus. Joseph could have easily taken the path of least resistance. He could have exposed Mary as an adulteress, have ridden himself of the scandal once and for all. He could have even claimed that she was raped by a Roman soldier and then piously adopted the child as his own. But in his righteousness, Joseph acted with mercy and grace. He took a path of great risk by taking the angel at his word and by taking Mary as his wife. And of course, by doing so, from that moment forward, everyone in the community would assume the worst. Joseph even takes the word of the angel in naming the child, which was the prerogative of the father. But in naming him Jesus, 
which is not a family name, Joseph demonstrates something about his understanding of who this child is. If you wanted to prove to the gossips that this was your legitimate child, then naming him Joseph Jr. might be the best option. But Joseph implicitly understands that this child will not carry on the family name. He will not carry on the family business. God has other plans for this child. Radical plans. And Joseph's new sense of righteousness is is only a hint at what this will look like. In the 13th century, St. Bonaventure wrote, If you wish to know how such things come about, consult grace, not doctrine. Desire, not understanding. Prayerful groaning with God's word, not legalistic reading. Consult the lover, not the professor. God, not humanity. Legalistic righteousness is a response of fear. A fear that things will get out of hand. That we will somehow lose control. That the world might be turned upside down. Incarnational righteousness is all of that. (laughs) Things will get out of hand. We will lose control. The world will be turned upside down by Jesus. In the face of the incarnation, Joseph has to abandon control over his own world and trust a God who refuses to play by the rules. And that makes us very uncomfortable. Peter Story was a Methodist bishop from South Africa who was often called on to moderate in church conflicts. His practice was to come before the church with two books. In one book, he would hold the Bible. In the other book, he would, he would hold the Methodist Book of Discipline. And he would say, we can solve this crisis with one of these two books. Pick one. Almost without fail, he said, the congregation would choose the Book of Discipline. Whenever he asked why, the people would respond that they felt that their rights would be better honored by the church's book of laws than by a scripture that called for the love of enemies and submission to other people. What shapes our understanding of righteousness? Is it fear? Is it the the suspicion that God might actually ask us to do something uncomfortable or risky? Is it the fear that we won't get what's coming to us? To that fear, the angel speaks what is in fact the most often repeated command of the whole Bible. Do not be afraid. Do not be afraid to take Mary as your wife. Do not be afraid to risk everything because God has risked everything to be born of a virgin. Don't be afraid to live by a mercy-filled understanding of righteousness because God is graciously with us in Jesus Christ. 
And because of this, none of us will get what's coming to us. For his righteousness will become ours. And thereby he will save his people from their sins. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen.